Good evening, everyone. Welcome. My name is Ruth King, and I'm a guiding teacher with Insight Meditation Community of Washington. And I'm the founder of Mindful Members, Insight Meditation Community in Charlotte, North Carolina, where I live. I look forward to sharing with you some of the work from a book I'm just finishing that will be published in this spring of 2018 that has to do with being mindful of race, understanding and transforming habits of harm. It's so good to see you all here. Thank you for coming out. I want to begin by saying that racism is one of the most rooted and painful impasses of our time. And I know that doesn't surprise a number of you. It's fed through unawareness, the misuse of power, and the inability to sit still with the raw truth of how we are and what we're capable of as humans. And I think that um, some of the questions that many of the people I've been working with through a training I've been offering called Mindful of Race to a number of sanghas and insight meditation teachers is they're kind of asking these questions. They're asking, how do I work with my thoughts, fears, and beliefs in ways that nurture the dignity of all races? How do I comfort my own raging heart in a sea of racial ignorance and violence? How do I do that in this practice? How do I do that? How can my actions reflect the world I want to live in and leave to future generations? And how do I advocate for racial justice without causing harm, both internally and externally? These are some of the questions that many um, practitioners of mindfulness are trying to understand and put into context and actually bring the issue of racial distress right into the heart of their practice. I often talk about racism as a heart disease and it's curable. It's curable through um, a growing awareness of uh, awaking up to our habits of mind, the ways we've been conditioned to be separate from each other. Yet we're all one soup that we need to taste. But we don't know that. So it's a lot I have to say about this. I feel passionate about this topic. Ask me why. And um, so, and what I'd like to do, because we have such a limited amount of time, is I'd like to talk about it in relationship to what I'm calling now a racial awareness rubric. And it'll be just six pieces to hold on to as you continue to look at your inquiry, look into your inquiry of race and racism, both in your own hearts 
and also just what you see around you. So before I talk about this, I just want to offer one of the Buddhist teachings that can help us put this in perspective. The Buddhist teaches on the two-truth doctrine. And the two-truth doctrine speaks of ultimate and relative reality in our tradition. There's ultimate reality where we're nobodies, and there's relative reality where we are somebodies in the world, fundamentally wrapped around concepts. Race being a concept, a way that we've learned to navigate the territory of our kinship and belonging. So in ultimate reality, in relative reality, I'm, I'm a woman, I'm black, I'm lesbian, I'm a great-grandmother, I'm, I'm a number of things, all these identities, I guess you can say. But in ultimate reality, I'm none of these things. I'm empty, aware, particles, maybe. And ultimate and relative reality are understood as the same force, just different expressions of the same truth, of one truth. And often when we come to Buddhist practice, we're kind of inspired by the ultimate reality of the practice. And if we're not, if we're, if we're not careful, we'll bypass this relative reality that's in the soup of sangha. You know, we come on silent retreats and we come and be silent together. <laughs> but the minute we start talking to each other, things can start falling apart, especially if there's diversity in the room. We start feeling into the relative reality of how we are as a human race. And there's some things to kind of wake up to. There's, some, there's a shape to oppression that I think we can begin to recognize that supports us in snapping out of our habituation, snapping out of our conditioning, waking up to just the ways we've been shaped. Because we're all habits. And the good thing about habits is that they can change. And they do change with uh, mindfulness. They change from the inside that then impacts how we relate to each other in community and sangha. So I focus on race, but I could well focus on sexuality, on gender, on, you know, any number of identities. But they all have something in common, you know. They all have some certain characteristics that we can begin to pay attention to. So I'm going to talk about this rubric But before I say anything, I want to talk about the limits of language. And I'm probably not going to get it all right as I talk about this this evening. (laughs) You know, and this imperfect, kind of well-avoided topic. And I'm going to be using terms like white folks and people of color just as gateways to have us look at ourselves. I know you're not in those small little boxes, But I think it's useful for this topic to have some way of showing some of the patterns of 
harm that um, are, are pretty, pretty recognizable if we open our eyes to it. So this Rubik has, um, you know, the first two sides of it I'd like to talk about is that um, we're all individuals and we're also all members of racial identities, racial identity groups. It's just that some of us know that and others of us don't. Some of us identify more as being individuals, and others of us identify more as being part of racial groups. Many white people identify as being individuals, good individuals. Many people of color identify as being a part of a racial identity group. And the reason for that is because Racial identity groups for people of color have been the groups that have had to come together to be a group in order to survive. It's not to say that that's not true for white people, but it has not been the practice necessarily. It hasn't had to be the practice necessarily. So we're all good individuals. We're all members of racial identity groups. Some of us know that, some of us don't, and that has impact. The second part of the rubric is that there are all races are not created equal. Some races are in a dominant position in society, other races are in subordinated positions in society. Some of us know that, some of us don't. Dominance, uh, the characteristic of being in a dominant group identity is that the dominant group identity, which is white, by the way, in our society, the dominant group identity tends to define social norms, controls resources, it's a position of power. There's a social presumption of superiority, mainly because of the norm of seeing mostly white people in positions of power in media, in medical, just the list goes on. Oftentimes when it comes to race, the dominant position is there's an eagerness to fix racial problems more than experience or understand the roots of the racial problem. So the anxiety kicks in to wanting to fix it before it's understood. Most dominant um, groups, and speaking to race, most white groups do not tend to understand subordinated group identities. And the focus in dominant group as a, as a group dynamic, I'm just not looking at individuals, the only way to understand this is to look at group identity, is that the, for, again, the dominant group tends to focus more on individual identity. And the common mindset is, well, I don't understand, convince me or help me understand 
what I'm not getting. That's the, that's the common response to people of color that are knocking on the door around awareness. So these are characteristics of dominance, dominant racial groups, which happens to be white in our society here. Subordinated racial groups tend to react or assimilate to social norms defined by whites. There's a tendency to fight for resources. There's a social presumption of inferiority. There's an emphasis on wanting to um, the racial problems to be understood and felt, not just fixed. Most subordinated racial groups know a whole lot about dominant group culture because their lives depend on being able to navigate that territory. There tends to be a racial group identity focus among subordinated groups. And the common mindset is you won't get away with harming us. And this, is the, this is the energy that movements are made of. So dominant and subordinated racial group identities um, is something we can begin to recognize. But in order to recognize it, we have to be willing to look beyond the lens of being an individual and see the pattern that's reflected in the society that we live in. Within the um, dominant and subordinate group dynamic, there's six hindrances that we can begin to start paying attention to. And these are hindrances to social harmony. The first hindrance is the one I've talked about already, which is the good individual. So an example I can give on this dynamic is... um, uh, I've had white people say to me, for example, when I look at you, I don't see race. So the, um, I understand what that means, by the way. I understand that you can look at me and not see race. But when you look at me and you don't see race, it has me a little nervous. It has me nervous because If you don't see race, I'm wondering what you are seeing. Does it mean that you're seeing me as you see yourself, as a good individual? Does it mean that um, your racial or my racial history doesn't really matter in this moment because we're just here together as good individuals? So what happens with that comment is nothing wrong with it. it, I, I understand the intention behind it. But the impact of it leaves something missing out of the equation for me that's important. I want you to see my race because it means so much to me. I'm not clinging to race. It's just that it's a texture of my experience that I don't want to be invisible, 
that I don't want to be invisible in our interaction. I don't expect you to say, when I look at you, I see a black person. <laughs> it's kind of like um, when to not see race is, is the hindrance or the, the, the habit of harm. It's the avoidance of looking and seeing the color that is before you that is, is the habit of harm. Think about it. Rarely have, um, uh, would you hear a person of color making a comment like that? You know, just to kind of flip the, the script on that. So it's an important thing when we are trying to be together and belong and be a part of kinship that we recognize these tender spots uh, and places of invisibility that is present often um, in the racial conversation that comes um, from mainly white people speaking from the place of being an individual, not rooted in a group identity, racial group identity that has been vetted, that has been examined. Rarely, but increasingly, but rarely have whites examined the collective, historic, pervasive, and often unconscious advantages of being members of a racial dominant group. This is not a criticism. It's a hindrance to racial harmony. When I was... um, doing a training in Charlottesville on the mindful of race work. I've worked with that insight community for a number of years, Pat Coffey's community there. And um, a training shortly after uh, Trump was elected, uh, there was a couple of white men in the group there saying, you know, I don't know what's wrong with people. People keep coming up to me figuring, assuming, associating me with Trump, and I'm not Trump, and I don't know why they're putting me in that category. And I said, welcome to my world. (laughs) That's an example of individual. I'm one of the good guys. I'm a good guy. I'm not one of them versus group identity. You are one of them. doesn't mean that's who you are, but you are one of them. You know, but that kind of coming together to really understand the Trump part of me or the Trump part of whiteness or whatever that might be, it hasn't been engaged. And the rootedness, the importance of that historical context being in the soup of the discussion is how we miss each other in a big way when we try to talk about race. If you're coming to the table as an individual and I'm coming as a group, we're missing each other. We need, to, we need to come with our history, with, our, with understanding what we're rooted in. And when that's vacant, when that's absent from the equation, it could be a very scary place for people of color to feel safe, connected, and engaged. So that's what happens um, with this first hindrance. The first hindrance is that if white people stay at the individual level, it makes uh, it very difficult to cross, um, to to not only know your own racial identity intimately, 
and to deepen belonging, but to also reach across race to deepen your relationship with other races. It's a missing piece in social equanimity and the social harmony, especially of our time. The second hindrance is internalized oppression, which is a characteristic that's lived within the body of color among people of color. And it's something uh, for people of color, for, for, the, for people that have been oppressed in a dominant culture of whiteness, when the expectations and the norms are defined and controlled by the structural racism that we see in the world. Um, that does something to the psyche. It does something to the heart. It does something to our, as a person of color, it does something to our capacity in, in our own relationships with each other. Because the socialization centers around a sense of scarcity. So it creates a certain internal competition. I mean, there's a lot to say about internalized um, oppression. But it's a deprogramming of the psyche to distrust yourself and distrust other members of color. And sometimes I refer to it as a pyramid of, of, of suffering within subordinated group, racial groups. And what you start to see, you know, sometimes you, what I'll see in the groups that I'm working with is that once black people start talking about slavery, it trumps every other racial discussion that's in the group. And I use the term Trump carefully, <laughs> you know. So it kind of floods out and, and fills up all the space. And then you have other races wondering, you know, when they can get a voice in or feeling as though their suffering is less important. And this is an important thing that we have to um, get our arms around and heal as, uh, as a body of color. The third um, hindrance is uh, what I refer to as the stars and constellations. And this has to do with um, um, this conditioned way of seeing the problems when, we, when we're looking at racial conflict. White people tend to notice the stars, the single incidents of a racial conflict, for example. People of color tend to see the Big Dipper or you know, some of those other constellations that are in the sky. When Michael Brown was killed by the police, there was a community gathering in Charlotte that I went to where we were put in small groups and showed a video clip and then asked what we saw. And I was in a group with um, mostly white people who were very distressed over the situation. And a white man uh, shared that he, you know, he said, I can't believe um, that man killed that boy that way. And it shouldn't happen. It shouldn't have happened. He was trembling. He was crying. And he was very, very distressed. 
And when I shared, I shared, I can't believe that once again, a white police officer has killed another black person. And I too was upset and trembling (laughs) and distressed. We were both seeing the same thing. It was just that we had a different way of, of relating to it. He saw, he saw the stars of this situation, the single incident that should have never happened. He was very sincere about it. I saw a pattern of pain, a constellation that just seems to keep showing itself in the sky. And this is another way that we tend to miss each other in terms of how we see and kind of experience what's wrong. To see the constellation would be to see, see, to see group identity. To see the star, the single star, is, is rooted in an individual lens. It's, they're both true. It's just that when it comes to our sense of separation, we miss each other there. When we start to see the constellations, the patterns of harm, we'll be able to connect the dots and see the relationship between the immigrants and the dark bodies and the bodies that are in the prison system and Palestine and Bosnia and Syria, Australia, Canada. We'll see the same shape of oppression, the same shape of harm. But we have to be willing to see the See the, see the patterns, the racial group patterns that's there. They're not separate issues. They're constellations, and we all share the same sky. The fourth um, hindrance is related to intent and impact, or what I call the oops and ouch of um, of patterns of harm. I'll go back to the example of when I see you, I don't see color, I don't see race. Um, The intent was lovely. The intent was saying, I'm not putting you in a box. The impact was different. When you've been oppressed, like my people have been oppressed, you know, a lot of people have been oppressed, you know, in other ways other than race. But when you've been oppressed, it's important that your identity is not invisible, is not overlooked. In fact, you have to hold on to it a little bit because it has been obliterated. You hold on to it a little bit just to be strengthened before you can even let it go. I found that to be true in this practice. You know, we, in this practice, we talk about the no-self and the non-self. But for people of color, you got to have that self <laughs> before you can let that self go. It's not so easy to toss out identity because that's, that happens too often to oppressed groups. Another way you see good intention, uh, this dynamic of intention and impact, is when there's the movement towards diversifying teams and leadership teams and sanghas and, you know, let's get more people of color 
in our sanghas. Good intention. The impact is that people of color come into predominantly white, dominant group sanghas, but the culture doesn't really change. Something more than just adding the people of color has to happen for the culture to change. For there to be real connection. Otherwise, it's just representation, tokenism, assimilation. It hasn't worked for us. You know, policies don't change hearts, you know. And then the fifth hindrance is a cumulative, cumulative impact. This happens a lot for people of color who are constantly talking about race to white people. And the accumulation of that energetic adds up and then there's sometimes an explosion or you might get somebody going off or being angry, a person of color being angry at you. And you're wondering, well, what did I do? Good individual, right? What did I do? I didn't, you know. I mean, the heat of what just happened doesn't match with what just happened, right? But it has to do with an accumulation of many kind of what's referred to now as microaggressions that kind of accumulate, and then all of it's, after a while, there's just an explosion. I'm not condoning that behavior, by the way, but I understand it. Because there's an imbalance. I mean, there's an innocence in the individual comment or oh, I, I'm sorry I said that. I mean, that, that, there's, there's intention and pure intention there. But because it's accumulated by people of color, it has more intensity and, and weightedness. It's referred to often as battle fatigue in, in the civil rights movement. And when white people respond to that overreactivity, um, by shutting down, uh, it's even more challenging for the conversation to happen. If you get hurt uh, because you're taking it personally, which can happen at the individual level, then it's difficult to engage. But if you can respond to that at the group identity level, then you might have more opportunity of seeing that a bridge can happen but it's unpleasant. Uh, It's one of those challenges that we have as humans to move towards harmony. And then the last hindrance that I've found to be a pattern is the hindrance of white privilege. And most white people can't relate to that term of white privilege because it hasn't been their experience of feeling like they're privileged. But that's an individual response. To understand privilege is to understand group identity. It's group identity. It's the group identity of white that is privileged. It's not such a one-on-one thing. 
So there's so much to be learned by engaging in um, understanding white privilege that we don't have time to cover. But there's three things you can begin to notice that's characteristic in white privilege, and that is blindness, sameness, and silence. Usually there's a blindness to the white privilege and a resistance to the discussion about it if somebody brings it up. There is sameness, and there's a blindness even about the sameness that's there. I read something on Facebook in 2015. It said, incoming Congress, 80% white male, 92% Christian, 100% unaware that this is a problem. (laughs) That's sameness and blindness. And the very color of people of color coming into sameness creates a certain stimulus that's usually not talked about. But then when you feel that, you can know you're in a sea of sameness because all of a sudden you're feeling different because some, someone else is around, some color's around. I worked with a white woman who was a leader in a corporation who um, she had an all-white team of leaders and they were trying to do some diversity work there and she said, I don't understand why the people of color, they seem to be gathering at lunchtime and eating together more and more lately. And I said, so, so who do you have lunch with? And she said, well, I usually have lunch with the leaders. And I said, well, are they all white? And she said, yeah. And I said, well, what do you think the people of color think about that? You know, She had never thought about that. But she was willing to hear about that. So these six um, hindrances to social harmony is a part of what keeps the dynamic of dominant and subordination uh, in place. And then when when the when the patterns when the patterns get even more entrenched, you know, if if white people, for example, are not conscious of group racial group identity, and then they are leading corporations, leading organizations in positions of power. And what they take with them in those positions of power is an unconsciousness about race, racial group identity. And then that gets played out as the norm inside the institution. So then the, 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 the place of racism then gets really reinforced because the leadership is only bringing the consciousness that they have about race with them. That's what we all do. We bring what we have cultivated around race with us. And then it becomes kind of proliferate it. And if there's no consciousness around race, then there's no consciousness around racism that then becomes a part of policies, practices, and uh, beliefs and norms inside the system.
So enough about that. The third pair on this rubric of awareness, racial awareness, is mindfulness and racial affinity groups. And mindfulness practice, we've been practicing here, and I know there's going to be a discussion group here, but let me just say a couple of things about the mindset of mindfulness. There's a beautiful teaching and the Buddhist, uh, the Buddhist discourse is called the Vipalasa Sutta. The Vipalasa Sutta is talking about the misperception of mind. I refer to it as a cycle of misperception. And what he's describing in the Sutta is this relationship between perception, our perceptions lead to stimulate thoughts and emotions, which then influences, if they're repeated, it, it, it influences our view and beliefs. So how we perceive race, and we all have a way of perceiving it, we have all been conditioned in our racial views, whether we know it or not. How we have learned to perceive our automatic knee-jerk, pull-the-trigger-whatever-it-might-be habit is loaded. It, I mean, it comes with, our perception comes with thoughts and emotions, which are often rooted in some past experience. So we have a perception, we have an immediate thought and emotion about it, and then when that's reinforced, it becomes a way of seeing a way of looking at the world, a way of being. I've had people ask me, you know, white people ask me, why do, why do people of color run from the police? You know. Think about that. We're conditioned from our beliefs People of color are afraid of the police, understandably, some are. White people are afraid of people of color, black folks. And then you use whatever power you have to, to, uh, you know, to kind of survive in that situation. If you have a gun, you use it. If you have the ability to run, you use that. I mean, these are kind of these instincts that kick in. Not condoning it. It's our habit of mind. So mindfulness, this sutta goes on to talk about the things we forget that we need to remember. We need to remember that we are, um, that in some ways, uh, the nature of who we are is not these races, but that's more in the ultimate realm, right? But in a relative way, we really have to really have some conversations about our conditioning so that we can change our habits. And one way to change our habits of mind is what I encourage through forming racial affinity groups. 
we need a place where we can come and engage around this topic where it's safe and uh, we have a chance to do our oops and ouches and, 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 um, and wake up and develop more racial literacy about our own race. So I encourage like races to get together to engage their race, which is very different than getting together to learn about other races. I'm suggesting you get together and learn about your race, your habits, your thoughts, your fears, your heartbreaks, your belonging, your capacity to love and heal, and to use mindfulness as your base of staying tender and present to what you're unfolding. So mindfulness practice and racial affinity groups are both mindfulness practices. And on my website, if you're interested in forming a racial affinity group, there's a, there's a guideline sheet on my website under resources called How to Form a Racial Affinity Group and... And when I say form one, I'm talking about like between two or three people, no more than seven, five ideally, of people that can commit to coming together maybe once a month for a year where your focus is to look at this thing called race. For white people, it would be to look at this thing called whiteness that everybody seems to know about but maybe us. And for people of color, it's really looking at the ways we've internalized oppression and racism and to also examine who we are in the absence of talking about white people. And there's also a list of um, maybe 30 questions you can begin to engage around to have this conversation be intimate, inward, and um, mindful. So that's the rubric. Individual, we're all individuals. We're all part of racial group identities. Some of us know that, some of us don't. There's, racial groups are not created equal We have dominant racial groups and subordinated racial groups and a way of turning ourselves around to kind of shift the habits of harm is really bringing this distress into the heart of our mindfulness practice and also in the form of racial affinity groups. So let's just sit together for a couple of minutes.
through our practice, may we be an example of how to be human and how to grow wise for this generation and for the generations to come. May we be well and at ease. Thank you so much for your kind attention. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.